then you're aware that we've been studying um, Southern Baptist history. We've taken some time to do that as a congregation. It's rarely done. Probably something should be done a little more often, but we took a little time to really answer the question, where did we come from? And tonight, we're going to shift gears just a little bit and think about where we are and where we're going as, uh, as a denomination. And our church is aligned with Southern Baptist Convention. And as we'll see in a moment, um, that is a choice that we make as a church. That's not something mandated on us. This church is locally owned and operated by the members of this church. But, um, but we do voluntarily affiliate with Southern Baptist Convention. And we've seen how, as Southern Baptists, our history is rooted in spiritual awakening and revival. How our roots really flow out of the first great awakening in the 1740s and the preaching of a man named George Whitfield and countless others. And out of that, that move of God in the early colonial period before the American Revolution, uh, Baptists began to explode across the South. Just rapid growth, uh, powerful preaching, and in this frontier area that was going to become the United States, you had the very first churches being started and founded, and it just spread like wildfire. And something very special, very unique took place. Uh, from those beginnings, Southern Baptists blossomed into the largest uh, Protestant, technically not Protestant, largest non-Catholic denomination in the United States. Uh, we have parts of our history that we can praise the Lord for and be very excited about. And then other parts of our history, like the, the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention, is rooted in the debates over slavery in the middle of the 19th century. Of course, we're not proud of that, but that is history, and we can't deny um, that part of our history. But we have gone on to apologize for it and to repent of it as a denomination, as best as a denomination can do something like that. Tonight, I want to talk about events and issues impacting the SBC today. And we're going to talk about essentially the past 25 years. Um, last time we met, I talked about what has come to be called the conservative resurgence and how something very remarkable happened with Southern Baptists that did not happen with many other denominations. Throughout the early part of the 1900s, many denominations like Presbyterians, Methodists, um, and others experienced a heavy influx of liberal teaching into their seminaries. Uh, as a consequence of that, liberal teaching meaning they did not accept the Scripture as being the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. They saw it just as a book like any other book. And so all the major beliefs of traditional or historic Christianity, one by one, came under attack in that kind of environment. And so many of those denominations moved away from their biblical moorings, became very liberal in their orientation, very preoccupied with kinds of things, but they were distracted from the gospel. Their memberships plummeted, and they suffered as a consequence. Southern Baptists saw that happening. Uh, the very beginnings of that same kind of movement began to occur in Southern Baptist seminaries and schools, uh, beginning probably in the 1940s and 50s. And as leaders became aware of it, there was a reaction to it. And Southern Baptists, who believe the Bible, worked together to take back the leadership of the denomination. And 
that was something that had not happened historically before. So uh, at the conclusion of the resurgence, you have to ask the question, okay, so a group of people who believe the Bible got together, marshaled and mobilized people to come and vote at these national meetings, and the machinery of the denomination was taken back. Now what? Now what? And, and, and what was the purpose? And what was the goal? If, if you're unified around a battle for doctrinal integrity, when that's over, when you've achieved your goal, what do you do next? And that is where we are today, and I believe that's what we've struggled with for the last 25 years. Seems like a no-brainer. I think most of y'all would say, well, you've got to get back on track, get back on mission, get back to evangelizing and making disciples and growing churches and starting new churches. And yet, just the opposite has happened um, in our denomination. So, I have cherry-picked six events, really five events and one issue, but I've cherry-picked six events that I believe help tell the story of where we are today as Southern Baptists. And at the very end, I'm going to talk about some things that I think are really important for our future. What are those six events? I'm going to, I'm going to list those six events for you. They're already up. And then I'm going to go through and talk about them one by one. The first is the emergence of the young Calvinists. We're going to talk about that beginning 1993 with the election of a man named Al Mulder to the presidency of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, the second event is the reorganization of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1995. That was voted in. Um, the third is the Baptist Faith and Message Revision in the year 2000 that was voted on. That's our doctrinal statement, and we have embraced that as a church. Uh, Hurricane Katrina and SBC disaster relief and the recovery that followed in 2005, I believe, affected our denomination. I'm going to explain why. The Great Commission Task Report in 2010, and now, right now, there is an emphasis on diversity and leadership that is gaining a lot of steam and is having a profound effect on our denomination. So let's take that first issue. The emergence of the young Calvinists in 1993. As I already mentioned, Al Mohler was elected the ninth president of the Southern Baptist Convention, excuse me, of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1993. He started there as a student in 1980, began to work there as part of the institution, was an assistant to one of the presidents of the seminary, and ultimately was elected by the trustees to become the president of the school. Uh, in Baptist life, there have always been strict forms of Calvinism, and we're not going to go deep on that, but I've I got to make reference to it. There's always been a strict form of Calvinism among us and what I would call a modified Calvinism among us. What do I mean by that? If you go back through our history, you will find definitely a stream of people who were very strict or high Calvinists in their theology. A Calvinist tends to put more emphasis on what God does in salvation than on what man does. And so a Calvinist will emphasize God's sovereignty in our salvation, will emphasize God's initiative in our salvation, will emphasize God's grace in our salvation. And all those things are good and true, um, but there, there, are, um, there are aspects to Calvinism that, that others struggle with. The traditional way of talking about Calvinism is to use the acrostic tulip. And, um, and the word tulip 
Um, each of those letters stands for a key doctrine in Calvinist theology. T stands for, anybody know? Total depravity. In the high Calvinist way of understanding depravity, it means that when a person is born, they are already born a sinner, which is true. But they have absolutely no capacity and no ability to respond to the gospel. They're completely cut off, completely blind, completely deaf to the Holy Spirit. And that depravity that they're referring to is referring to man's inability to respond to God. U stands for unconditional election. That God, before you were born, in fact, before the world was made, chose you to be saved. What does that say about everybody else? He didn't choose them. And so unconditional election is a, is a belief in high Calvinism. L stands for limited atonement. Uh, limited atonement says that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died only for God's chosen ones. He died only for his elect. And he did not die for everybody else. Limited atonement. Um, are you beginning to see why some people might be uncomfortable with this kind of a high form of Calvinism? You may believe that. If you do, bless you. But limited atonement, I really have a struggle with. Um, I stands for irresistible grace. That when God gets ready to save his chosen one, uh, his Holy Spirit causes the new birth before they believe. That the new birth comes first, and that enables a person to hear, understand, comprehend, and believe the gospel. Irresistible grace, that God sort of flips the switch, and you're in. And P is perseverance, perseverance of the saints. We talked about this morning. And um, I have no trouble with that one. Uh, what God starts, God finishes. And once he is uh, doing this regenerating work inside of us, uh, he is going to continue that work all the way to heaven. And so when I talk about modified Calvinism, I would talk about that most Baptists accept several of those points, but not all those points. And in our history, we have tended to see that. We have seen people who would accept some of those points, but not all those points. Uh, probably the one that's most controversial is limited atonement. Um, that Jesus only died for the sins of the elect. The rationale behind that is if Jesus died for everybody's sins, on what basis can they be condemned? On what basis can they go to hell? And so if you really believe Jesus died for everybody, then all their sins are paid for, and everybody goes to heaven. And in fact, a lot of the early high Calvinists wound up becoming universalists who believe that everybody goes to heaven, nobody goes to hell. And, uh, and so there's a logical tension there that goes on. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about limited atonement is the emphasis that Jesus died for our sins, specifically for our sins. Uh, one of the verses you'll hear me quote often is when Peter writes, uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus didn't die for sin in general. He died for my specific sins, sin one, sin two, sin three, sin four. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. All of my sins were taken to the cross. And limited atonement does emphasize that. But did Jesus only die for the sins of the elect? Well, I, I think there are some real scriptures that, that work against that, that work against the idea of 
of um, irresistible grace or unconditional election. Um, the First um, John two two we talked about propitiation says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only but also the sins of the whole world. And so he is the way that the wrath of God is is removed, not just for us but for everyone. And so um, and so there there are scriptures like that. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If, that's, if he's not willing that any should perish, then, and he has the power to just make everybody believe, cause everybody to turn to him, why doesn't he do it? And uh, so there, I have intellectual issues with those intellectual thoughts of um, high Calvinism. So most Baptists tend to embrace a modified form of what's called Calvinism. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the new birth. We believe that um, in election, that God knew us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should stand holy and blameless uh, before him in love, having predestined us unto adoption. So, so we believe in predestination. We believe in election. We just define those words differently based on our understanding of Scripture. We can't cover all that tonight, but Needless to say, in Baptist life, there has been a return to this higher form or more intense form of Calvinism. In 1858, James Boyce and Basil Manley Jr. composed the Abstract of Principles. It's like a statement of faith that includes very clear statements about Calvinism at Southern Seminary. Today, all Southern Seminary professors have to sign off on that document when they become a professor at that school. They must adhere to that. Modified Calvinism dominated Southern Baptist thought from about 1925 on. Uh, E.Y. Mullins, who was a professor at Southern, uh, believed more of a modified form of Calvinism. So when you read the Baptist faith and message, you'll, you'll, hear, you'll read, almost see those tensions between a uh, higher form of Calvinism and a more modified form. Um, now, uh, young Calvinists, in the 1990s began to appear in Baptist life. Where did they come from? Um, in 1982, a group was organized called the Founders Conference in Baptist life. It was a group of Southern Baptist pastors who considered themselves Calvinists. They embraced some of the oldest statements of Baptist belief. Um, those Baptist beliefs, the London Confession of Faith from 1689, the second London Confession of Faith. They embraced these old Calvinist statements a Baptist belief. And they wanted purposefully to see that individuals were moving into roles of leadership and roles of scholarship and teaching and pastoring who held and shared those same convic convictions. Uh, those who participated in the Founders Movement were Al Moeller and Tom Nettles and other Calvinist faculty members at Southern Seminary. Uh, you need to know, too, that what was happening in Baptist life there was part of something that was happening across several denominations. Um, in the 1940s and 50s, there was a wonderful Bible teacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's had tremendous effect on my own thinking. He was also a high Calvinist, and um, he influenced a whole generation of pastors and preachers in England and in the United States uh, who appreciated his strong, solid, expository Bible teaching and with it embraced his, theolo his theology as well. Uh, men like J.I. Packer and 
and John Piper and, um, and Tim Keller are all names that were products of that movement and went on to encourage and influence younger men and women. So, um, many Calvinist pastors are leading their churches not only to embrace these teachings, but also to a different kind of church government, an elder-led government as opposed to a congregation uh, form of government, congregational form of government. Historically, Baptists have practiced congregationalism. Uh, we had those business meetings. We had one last Sunday night. And what that means is our leadership will come to the church with decisions, will come to the church with proposals, with budgets, with hiring, with, you know, those kinds of things. We bring that to the church, and the church votes on those things as a congregation, and so we are congregationally led in that sense. Um, why do we do it that way? Our conviction is that the church represents the body of Christ. That each member of the body of the Christ has a direct link and connection to the head of the body, Jesus Christ. And that when Jesus speaks, he speaks to the body, not just to one person or two people or three people. He speaks to the church. And if I really want to understand the will of God, we take it to the church. The church prays over it, theoretically. The church together reaches an understanding of what God is. We believe the heart of God is as a church. Um, examples of this in the New Testament are found in Acts 15 and a couple other situations where the congregation did come together. They heard the apostles, heard what the leader said, but then the congregation together said, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to make this decision to go this way. And so we've embraced a congregational polity. An elder-led polity is one in which a handful of men, typically, who are like the pastors of the church, are, become the leaders of the church. And they make all the key decisions for the church. In some Baptist churches, you are seeing now a mixture of elder leadership and congregational affirmation. You see the two mixed together. Um, personally, I have no difficulty with either model. I can see biblical support for either approach. I really can. Um, we have chosen as a church to practice a congregational form of, of government. Um, some of the values of an elder-led uh, group is that there's a plurality of pastors instead of just one. And when you have a single senior pastor, the church tends to take on the personality of that single pastor. Uh, what's important to him and, well, they should. He's the senior pastor, right? But when there's a plurality, you have a mix of gifts and perspectives. And sometimes you get a much better uh, kind of leadership, when you're, especially when you're dealing with difficult problems and solutions and so forth. Uh, there's value in plurality. Um, there's a higher level of accountability for each pastor when that pastor is functioning within a group. So there's pros and cons either way. But... Um, I would sit in my office, and uh, no exaggeration, periodically I would get a phone call, and I'll, I'll give you an example of one, a real one that, that happened a few years ago. Got a phone call from a lady in a uh, place in Arkansas who said, uh, I need to understand Calvinism. And I said, well, how much time do you have, lady? She said, well, I just need to understand it. My pastor talks about it a lot. <laughs> 
I said, okay. And I said, well, well before I answer your question, uh, why is this important to you? She said, well, about three months ago, we called a new pastor, a young man. I said, where do you go to school? Southern Seminary. I said, okay, keep talking. They said, well, immediately he, um, he stopped meeting with the deacons. I said, okay. He started talking about uh, us having elders instead of deacons. I said, okay. He started teaching, and she started uh, rattling off TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, you know. Uh, and, of course, TULIP emphasizes God's sovereignty, and she was trying to understand ideas like limited atonement and unconditional election and irresistible grace, and she was trying to understand those things. And, um, and so she, she was asking me those questions and said, well, man, why, why is this important to you? She said, well, the deacons are going to meet tonight, and, um, and people are really upset, and I think they're going to fire him. And I said, well, ma'am, I said, we don't need to talk about Calvinism. Uh, we need to talk about how to humanely fire your pastor. <laughs> and, uh, and so we had a conversation about that. You know, what was interesting is that she was genuinely interested in what her pastor was teaching her. But he was young, and he was moving so fast, so fast, that people didn't understand what he was teaching and so uh, he lasted about 90 days. And that happened and has happened in Arkansas on the same issue again and again and again over the last 20 years. I could write that story that I just told you over and over again. Who were about to be fired from their church, a pastor and a student pastor, serving in the same church together. Both of them had embraced Calvinism. Um, doctrines of grace. They had embraced these things and they were teaching them. They were using um, that uh, Sunday school curriculum that embraced that, that high form of Calvinism. And they were emphasizing that. That's what they were teaching. That's what they were focusing on. And I, and I, um, I said, guys, well, this, they said, we're just being persecuted for our doctrine. I said, no, you're not being persecuted for your doctrine. I said, this isn't about Calvinism. I said, I could drive you to churches right now in Arkansas where the pastor is a high Calvinist, but he's also a really good pastor. And the people don't even agree with him on everything, but they love him because he loves them. And, and so it's not about your Calvinism. It's about your pastoring. And, and one of the things that sometimes is taught well to school, sometimes you really can't teach it at a school, is how to love people and how to lead change. And... There are factors that affect that. Uh, the history of a congregation, the age of a congregation, the size of a congregation. Uh, all those factors can affect that. But anyway, I've, I've wandered off a course. Emergence of the young Calvinists um, is a real factor in Baptist life. Today, uh, through the influence of Southern Seminary, there are now uh, people who, with shared beliefs who are leading Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Danny, Danny Aiken. Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, right now, the only two schools that are not heavily affected by this particular theology are New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and what used to be called Golden Gate, but is now called Gateway Theological Seminary in California. And so out of our six schools, four of them are heavily being influenced by this particular theology, and most of our institutional leaders 
would consider themselves Calvinists. And so it's a real issue because there are a lot of pastors and a lot of churches that don't, don't buy into that. So it's a point of tension. Second area I want to talk about is the SBC reorganization happened in 1995. Basically, we were looking at the money we were spending and where we were spending that money, and as a denomination, we said, we don't need all these things. We don't need a radio and TV commission. We don't need some of these things. And so we, we axed them. We, we did away with the Brotherhood Commission that was based in Memphis, Tennessee. We did away with some of our agencies and institutions, and we reduced them in number, or we consolidated some of their activities. And so we abolished the Historical Commission, the Education Commission, the Stewardship Commission, we merged the Brotherhood Commission, Radio and TV, with the Home Mission Board, and now we call it the North American Mission Board. And so I want you to see at the, at the next screen, today, this is what we support as Southern Baptists. When we give on Sunday morning, a portion of what we give, in fact, 7%, goes to support the cooperative program. It supports work happening in Arkansas, and it supports these entities and agencies on the board. The SBC Executive Committee coordinates all the other groups. And it's a, as the name implies, it's a committee of elected leaders from all across the United States, and they meet periodically. And then there are staff in Nashville. Uh, the Women's Missionary Union is an auxiliary of the Southern Baptist Convention. They help raise money for missions, and they also are committed to missions education. The International Mission Board is the way we do missions overseas. North American Mission Board is the way we do it at home. Uh, then we have Gateway, the six seminaries. Gateway uh, is in, actually in the Los Angeles area now. It used to be in San Francisco. Uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. New Orleans is where? Um, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary is in North Carolina. Um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is in Louisville, Kentucky. Southwestern is in Fort Worth. Guidestone Financial Resources used to be called the Annuity Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. It basically is the retirement vehicle for ministers and denominational workers and uh, helps uh, widows of ministers who don't have enough support. Uh, we have Sunday school classes here that give to help widows through that agency, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Lifeway Christian Resources does not receive support from the cooperative program, but it produces and publishes the literature that we use and a lot of resources that we use. And then the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, functions really as the conscience of Southern Baptists, uh, challenging us to be involved in social issues, to oppose certain things, to support other things that we believe have biblical consequence if we just ignore them. Um, and so they write materials, they produce literature, they hold events, uh, to try to steer the tide in our morality and our ethics as a denomination. Um, there are, when this was done, uh, next slide, there were 47,000 churches. This is about 2015 when this was put together, so about three years ago. And what I want you to see there is that of those 47,000 churches, of which we are one of them, uh, we have an annual meeting each year in June of the Southern Baptist Convention. It meets in different cities and we are allowed to send messengers to that meeting. Uh, how many of y'all have been to a Southern Baptist convention at least once? Okay, maybe a dozen of you have been before. Uh, but we make the decision whether or not we're going to participate in that national meeting. It's our decision. There is not a, a, a group that oversees Wynn Baptist Church. There's not a, the executive committee in Nashville has nothing to do with our church. 
we have something to do with them, but they don't have any authority over us. And so we choose and we have the opportunity to participate in that national meeting. What happens at national meeting? Well, it's a big preach-off. There's a lot of sermons that are preached. But aside from all the preaching, there are business decisions made. There are officers that are elected. There are uh, nominees for different trustee boards that are replaced. And so there is business intermingled with all of the preaching uh, and all the fellowship and all the hallway conversation, all the lunches and dinners that go on during the year. They have a meeting. We send leadership to that meeting. And uh, they are representatives or sent out from our church. Technically, they're called messengers. We elect to participate in that association. We elect to send money to the association to support work in our area. We have a state convention based in Little Rock, the Arkansas Baptist State Convention. They do things like disaster relief. Uh, they help coordinate and support uh, gifts to Washita Baptist University and Williams Baptist College and Arkansas Baptist Children's Home and Arkansas Baptist Assembly in Siloam Springs and, the, and all the different activities uh, that we do as Baptists in Arkansas. We elect messengers to that annual meeting each year. So at each level, the local level, the state level, and the national level, we are free to participate. And, and it's not top-down um, we're at the top of the process. We, we are the ones who give. We are the ones that send leadership. We are the ones who vote and uh, make those critical decisions. And then there are affinity groups and fellowships that some churches also participate in. Uh, so we're really the hub of all of this activity. Uh, sometimes I'll meet folks and they'll say, well, we're not Southern Baptists, we're Independent Baptists. I said, well, you haven't spent much time in my church because we're independent Baptists too. Uh, there's nobody that controls us. There's nobody that tells us what to do. We are a standalone, self-governing congregation and church. And, um, and so we voluntarily participate in those other bodies. So um, that reorganization, uh, in many respects, I think streamlined our work as Southern Baptists. Third area I want to call attention to, the Baptist faith and message. Baptist faith and message, I should have brought one out with me. Uh, and if you want one, Mike can get you one after service. But it's a little booklet, and it uh, is a listing and a description of the key beliefs that we subscribe to as Baptists, as Southern Baptists. Uh, the value of that document is that we're not required to embrace it. But we have as a church. We have adopted that document as a statement of our faith. Um, part of the value of that document is that our institutions that we, we vote leadership for and that we give money to, our institutions have to abide by that document. They can't go off the reservation and teach something else. They have to stick with the teaching represented by that document. That becomes a safeguard for us to make sure that our institutions stay on uh, doctrinal course and they're not out there teaching that somebody can lose their salvation or that somebody can um, you know I don't know what it would be some kind of heresy I don't think in heretical terms anyway in 1998 uh, Southern Baptists added a new article of faith or a new section to the Baptist faith and message called the family and we clearly as a denominate now why is that significant today has marriage been redefined? It has by our courts. 
But we have for decades been on record as saying, no, we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, while of equal value, husbands and wives had different roles in the family, and that's defined in that statement, and life for children begins at conception. And so you're part, we are part of a denomination that takes a stand publicly on abortion, that takes a stand on biblical marriage as between a man and a woman, that takes a stand on what we understand a biblical family to be. Now, a more extensive overhaul of the document took place in the year 2000, and um, uh, I, I'm going to make a decision here. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into the detail on this, but let me ask um, folks running the slides. Uh, basically, we wanted to make a stronger statement about the truthfulness of Scripture. We wanted to make a stronger statement about who is qualified to be a senior pastor. We wanted to make a, a stronger statement about... Um, uh, several factors that we felt like were loopholes that some people were teaching in schools and they would sign the Baptist faith a message, but they really didn't believe what they were signing and they were making excuses for it. So we were trying to close those gaps, I think, as a denomination. If you'll go to the last slide where it says other issues addressed, other issues addressed, Baptist faith and message, other issues addressed, there it is. Uh, in, this, in the updated version, the Baptist Faith and Message, 2000, disavows the openness of God theology. Whenever we revise a faith statement, it's often to correct some error that's popular at the time. And um, there is still, in some institutions and some writers and teachers, um, there is a teaching that God himself doesn't know the future. That God is not, not omniscient. He's not all-knowing that he is experiencing time the same way that we are. It's called the openness of God, open theology. And so we disavowed that. We said we don't believe that. We, we stated, went on record, that the pastoral role, particularly of a senior pastor, is restricted to men. Uh, we removed prohibitions against worldly amusements and secular employment on the Lord's Day. I'm not sure we should have done that one. Um, and you can go to the sbc.net. And you will see they have comparisons there between the 1963 statement and the 2000 statement. And you can go blow by blow and see how they're different and what was updated, uh, if that's of interest to you. Uh, it was, I believe it was important for us to do that as a denomination so that our schools in particular would stay within the confines of what most Southern Baptists believe. Um, a fourth event that I think was very important to us it was Hurricane Katrina, and the ascension, the visibility of SBC disaster relief. They've been champions of disaster relief. Anybody else participate in disaster relief deployments at one time? Mike, anybody else? I have. Um, SBC disaster relief. They wear the yellow shirts. Uh, when there's a disaster, hurricane, flooding, uh, they're the ones that show up. We feed people. We enable them to get showers. We get the mud out of their house. We get the trees off their roofs. And, um, and people love Southern Baptists when we show up. Uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, uh, we were already in position, ready to cook, before FEMA was ready to deliver food. And I know that because it was, it was our team that was sitting there waiting to do the cooking. And, uh, and so, because FEMA couldn't, couldn't get the food to us, 
we called up Tyson, Northwest Arkansas. They shipped the chicken down to New Orleans, actually to Kenner. And our volunteers slept in the jail and cooked the food, and Salvation Army carried the food out to the various parts of the city. Uh, if you go down to New Orleans today to certain parts of the city, you tell them you're Southern Baptist, you better get ready, they're going to hug you, give you a kiss. Uh, we stayed down there not only for the initial recovery and the feeding of volunteers, which took a long time, took years, but we, stay, we continued to stay down there as Southern Baptists for five, six, seven years afterwards, helping people who didn't have insurance get roofs back on their house, help, help get back into their homes. Uh, Southern Baptist in Arkansas, we partnered with the remains of Gentilly Baptist Church near the seminary, and we helped remodel, rebuild it. If you walked into their sanctuary, when I first walked in, uh, you could see the water lines nine feet up on the wall in their sanctuary. It had to be completely gutted, everything taken out, uh, completely scrubbed down before they could restore it. We took one of their education buildings. They didn't have hardly a church left. We took one of their education buildings, turned it into dormitories, and we sent teams down there as Arkansas. Now, why is that significant, that kind of activity? Because there were larger congregations in Arkansas and across the United States that had distanced themselves from Southern Baptist cooperation and giving. They said, well, we don't need the Southern Baptist Convention. They need us. But we don't need them. They don't do anything for us. And suddenly when this occurred, the scale of the response was so great, it was bigger than any megachurch could muster a response. And on top of that, the Red Cross and FEMA would not allow you to come in and serve unless you had the credentials, unless you'd been trained, unless you were coming with a recognized group like Southern Baptist Disaster Relief. Our deployments were governed by the Red Cross. Our deployments were governed by FEMA, not by... Um, are just deciding we're going to show up and do something, but, but there's a whole process to it. And, and so suddenly uh, the larger congregation said, you know, maybe being Southern Baptist is valuable. Maybe we truly can do more together than we can do by ourselves. And suddenly they began participating. They began cooperating. They began giving again to the cooperative program. And in some cases, the larger churches said, well, we're going we're gonna to buy our own feeding unit or we're going to buy our own shower unit. We're going to buy our own radio unit so that we can deploy a team right out of our church. But they have to do it within the structure and the relationships of the Red Cross and the North American Mission Board and, in our case, an Arkansas Baptist. It had a dramatic effect on the relationship of many megachurches to Southern Baptist life, churches that had stepped back we're now stepping back up to the plate. Number five, Great Commission Task Force Report. Well, after the resurgence was over and we got the seminaries back under control, at least that was the, the, the way of thinking, um, another problem developed. It wasn't a doctrinal. Our baptisms began to plummet. We weren't evangelizing people anymore. Uh, it has been going down every year since about 1999. Baptisms for the last two or three years have been less than they were in the 1940s. And so we have a real problem. 
One of the responses to that problem was the creation of the Great Commission Task Force. The idea was to get us back on track and to figure out what we needed to tinker with or change as a denomination in order to facilitate, to change the situation, to impact uh, what was going on in Baptist life. The stated purpose was to find ways for Southern Baptists to work more faithfully and effectively together. Um, and I, I, you can see on the slide as a response to downward trends, baptisms, revenue, uh, differing ministry philosophies, particular between larger churches and the rank and file Southern Baptist churches. Um, what they did was they established a new uh, category of giving. Used to, if you were Southern Baptist, you gave to the cooperative program. That was kind of the, the metric of whether or not you were a participating Southern Baptist. You gave to this cooperative program that funded all of these different things. Well, they came up with a new one because a lot of larger churches, and again, larger churches were driving this, a lot of megachurches said, well, we don't like giving to the cooperative program because we lose control where our money goes. Uh, maybe we don't want as much money to go here. We want more money to go over there. And so they started designating their funds uh, to the seminary they like. Uh, not to all six seminaries, but to the one seminary they like. Or to disaster relief or to whatever it is. And so this new category was formed called Great Commission Giving. And so it, it tracked your giving not just to the cooperative program, but to any Southern Baptist cause. And so it was, it was a way in which the embarrassment of men who were being elected to Southern Baptist work gave them a new way to be measured. It was political, but that's what it was. They also phased out cooperative agreements between Baptist state conventions and the North American Mission Board. Why is that significant? Because the way we did home mission work for years and years was through a partnership between the Home Mission Board, or the North American Mission Board in Atlanta, and Arkansas Baptist, or the North American Mission Board, NAM, and Washington Baptist, or Wyoming Baptist, or California Baptist. There was always this partnership. And, and the North American Mission Board would receive money through the Annie Armstrong offering and through the cooperative program, and they would give that money out to the states to start new churches, or to fund evangelism training, or to do disaster relief, whatever it was. But in order to get a dollar from the North American Mission Board, you had to, to match it with a certain amount of money. So if, uh, if your cooperative agreement said that in California, because they were a smaller Baptist state, you understand that, right? There are more Baptist churches in Arkansas than there are in California. There's 1,500 churches in Arkansas. There's about 1,100 in California. But you also need to hear me when I say that there are more Baptists in California than any other group except Catholics, which says a whole lot about California. Most people aren't anything out there. But if California was, was going to get money from the North American Mission Board, they had an agreement, and it was typically a percentage or a formula. Maybe it was 30-70. Uh, so for every 30 cents California put up, the North American Mission Board would give 70 you with me? And so every state had that, that agreement. The Great Commission Task Force removed all of those agreements so that the North American Mission Board could then focus on 
the work that they wanted to do, send the missionaries they wanted to send without regard to the strategies. I like the fact that our North American Mission Board is starting churches in the major metropolitan areas of the United States, our sin cities. That's important. Sin, sin, S-E-N-D, cities. Sin cities. Not S-I-N. Okay. I'm glad we're doing that. But I'm not glad that they took all the travel money away from Alaska missionaries who have to fly everywhere they go to get anywhere in Alaska. I don't like that. I don't like the money that, that was taken away from good work that was being done in places like Wyoming and Washington. Let, let Zach Minton talk to you about that sometime. It affected a lot of people. That task force report um, allows IMB missionaries to work in North America. In the old days, they couldn't. They had to go overseas. But that's why um, if they're working with a particular people group and that group has a concentration in Chicago, then we might assign an international missionary to work in Chicago. Um, it made some other changes uh, and increased the IMB their percentage of the pie from 50 to 51%. Every dollar that goes to Nashville, the International Mission Board gets over half. Another consequence of the report was that state conventions were then pressured to give more money also. And um, in places like Florida that was starting about 100 churches a year in their state to reach their millions of people in Florida, um, they went to 50 to 50 almost overnight. And that means a lot of money that was being used to start churches in Florida was no longer there. And um, so a lot of issues. Well, the sixth, uh, the sixth issue that affects us today, and this is happening right now, is a focus on diversity and leadership. Um, there's a growing sense, particularly among younger Southern Baptists, that we are, all of our leadership roles are filled too much by white, and they're not wrong. Um, and so it's very rare to see an African-American in leadership. It's very rare to see a woman in a, a committee role. It's very rare to see a lay person serving in an elected position. Uh, Fifty years ago, uh, it was not uncommon to have lay people elected to committees. But now, as a result of the conservative resurgence, um, ministers, preachers, tended to fill all those positions, and they tended to be uh, white men. And so there's a, there's a renewed emphasis. And as recently as in April this year, a preliminary report of the SBC nominating committee, if you'll remember, that's the committee that, that nominates people to serve on trustees, as trustees in the seminaries, to serve on all these boards and committees. Um, somebody got a hold of a copy. It was published. And a lot of people were upset because it was still the same old, same old. Uh, Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, tweeted, this is extremely disappointing in terms of ethnic diversity. Very, we have got to do better than this. Our trustee boards must reflect the whole SBC. And I, I don't disagree with him. The committee initiated measures to rectify the lack of diversity. Something similar is happening now with women and their involvement in leadership and laymen. The current president, who was just elected in June, J.D. Greer, said he wants convention offices and agencies to be a place where women sit at the seats of influence. There are perspectives that women bring to the conversation that men are not always aware of because they don't have the same experiences. And so many are calling for increased representation of 
people of, of, with different ethnicities, for women, and for lay leaders. And women would be lay leaders as well, but non-ordained uh, persons. Well, those are some of the things that, um, right or wrong, like it or don't like it, are affecting our denomination today. Let me close and just share with you three things that I think are, are going to grow in importance. And, but, um, but I think I'm, I'm right about these things. First, I believe we're going to see the rise of new cooperative networks they're going to provide fellowship, mentoring, and ministry for churches and church leaders. What does that mean? It means that for whatever reason, the existing Southern Baptist networks are not meeting those needs. Uh, I see already in, informal networks springing up all the time. Uh, groups of, of leadership, pastors, um, who have shared interest common passions and they're getting together to encourage one another and to work together on things. I'm seeing that happen in the Delta. You may be hearing more about that in coming months, but um, I had a meeting last month with a group of men, black and white, African-American pastors and Anglo pastors, and we're talking about ways that we can create a stronger network of people who want to see um, new churches start in the Delta that will reach people. Uh, that will break down the barriers and the walls. And so I think you're going to see new cooperative networks. Um, we've seen some of them already. There, there are groups out there, uh, but I think we're going to see more. Secondly, the biblical role in spiritual health of pastors. About 20 years ago, um, Focus on the Family hired a, a man who focused on the spiritual well-being and the physical well-being of pastors. And it was very popular while it lasted. Uh, they're no longer doing that, to my knowledge. Uh, Lifeway has attempted to do it. I was part of that uh, some 18 years ago. And um, I know the man who's doing it now. He's a friend of mine. But this is growing. Why is that? Well, when I first started out in ministry, if a man got fired from a church, it was a rare event. It was shocking. The pressure on pastors to be kind of an organizational jack-of-all-trades. Uh, not only theologically knowledgeable, but possessing all the qualities of a business leader, CEO kind of a person. That pressure is, is real. And the success or failure of the church is laid completely at the pastor's feet. And the consequence of that is you've got a lot of people who are burning out. They're losing their families because of neglect. They can't handle that kind of stress. A burnout's an emotional thing. Stress is a physical thing when adrenaline just wears your body out. And and I can't see that going on indefinitely. I promise you right now, if you go to Williams Baptist College, you go to Washtenaw Baptist College, you ask those young men there who are in ministry training, how many of you want to pastor an existing Southern Baptist church someday? Hardly anybody will raise their hand. None of them want to pastor a church like Williams Baptist. 
They don't. Most of them grew up in churches and they watched pastors get skinned alive. And they don't want anything to do with it. And it's, it's a real, real phenomenon that's taking place. They want to be church planters or student pastors, but they don't want to be senior pastors in existing churches. And part of that is because of what they've seen happen to older men that they've known while they were growing up. And so I believe that there's going to be a re-examination of what a pastor is for. Why do churches have pastors? What does the Bible say a pastor is supposed to do? What is he to give his time to? What is he to give his attention to come up? I also believe that there's going to be a renewed focus on the spiritual health of pastors. I think it would shock you how many pastors, if they were honest with you, would tell you that their own walk with God is embarrassing. That they would just be ashamed to admit how little they pray or how little they read the Bible for themselves, not just to get up a sermon. I believe that's an issue that's going to affect us. A third issue is, I think, affecting the pew, and that's a growing hunger for spiritual reality within the church. I used to talk about the hunger for spiritual reality that I would see outside the church. Uh, working in California and places like that, I would encounter people, and you could just sense that they were hunger, hungry for spiritual reality, a true encounter with God, to know someone who knows God. And they wanted to, wanted to have a conversation with someone like that. And, and now I don't think of it in terms of outside the church. I think of it as Christians inside the church. We have taught the Bible and taught the Bible and taught the Bible. And if it was all about teaching the Bible that was going to move us and get us out the door and reach people and experience joy and peace in our hearts, we would be overflowing with peace and joy in the church. But there's been a disconnect, I believe, between our knowledge of God and our experience of God. And I think that's going to reach critical mass in, at some point in the not-too-distant future. I hope it, it means a revival. I hope it means a spiritual awakening in Baptist life as people just get dry to their soul and say, I want to know God. I want to know God. And Lord willing, he's used us before as Southern Baptists to be a part of that. And there's, there's things that we care about in Baptist life. But I do know this, that we serve a God who has used us in the past as messed up and broken. I mean, could we have been any more backward than to support slavery in our founding? And yet God used us historically to do amazing things in spreading the gospel around the world. May he do it again. May he do it again.